Petey Hart, Pediatric Cardiologist today. My name is Dr. Robert Pass, and I'm the host of this program. I am Professor of Pediatrics at the Icon School of Medicine, and I'm the Chief of Pediatric Cardiology here at the Kravis Children's Hospital at Mount Sinai. Thank you very much for joining me this week for our 85th episode. I hope everybody had an opportunity last week to listen to episode 84, where we discussed the concept of an optimal conduit size for an external conduit in the setting of the Fontan. We spoke with Associate Professor of Medicine Ari Cedars of UT Southwestern, and for those of you with an interest in single ventricle physiology and the care of ACHD patients with single ventricles, I'd strongly recommend you take a listen to last week's episode 84. As I say each week, if anybody would like to get in touch with me, it's easy to remember my email. It's pdhart at gmail.com. This week, we're moving on to the concept of cardiomyopathy. Those of you in the audience may not be aware that September is Children's Cardiomyopathy Awareness Month, and for this reason, we'll be reviewing a paper on that topic. The title of the work we'll be reviewing is Impact of Obesity on LV Thickness in Children with Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy. The first author of this work is Sasadri Balaji, and the senior author is Molly Shaw, and this comes to us from many different centers throughout the world. When we're done reviewing the paper, Dr. Balaji has kindly agreed to speak with us about this work. Additionally, we have a very special treat. We're going to be speaking with Ms. Lisa Yu, who is the founder and president of the Children's Cardiomyopathy Foundation, which is an organization devoted to research into the area of children's cardiomyopathy. Ms. Yu will be joining us this week to discuss how she got started with this work and what the goals of the organization and foundation have been. And therefore, I'm very excited that we're going to be able to review a cardiomyopathy paper and speak with someone so important important in the world of children's cardiomyopathy in Ms. Yu. Therefore, without further ado, let's move straight on to the article, our interview with Dr. Balaji, and finally, our interview with Ms. Yu. Once again, the title of this work is The Impact of Obesity on Left Ventricular Thickness in Children with Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy. The first author is Sasadri Balaji, and the senior author is Molly Shah, and this comes to us from multiple centers, all associated with the PACES organization. The work begins with the statement that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is associated with LV hypertrophy above two standard deviations from normal, corrected for age, and body size in the absence of other causes of LVH, such as genetic syndromes, aortic valve stenosis, aortic coarctation, or hypertension. They then make the statement that obesity can promote LVH as well in the general population, and that obesity in the adult hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patient has been associated with additional increases in LVH. However, despite this, the effect of obesity on cardiac hypertrophy in the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy child is unknown, and so the investigators studied the impact of body mass on echo measurements of LV wall thickness in a retrospective cohort study of children with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. This was a retrospective large-scale international study in kids less than or equal to 20 years of age, with centers recruited throughout the Pediatric and Congenital Electrophysiology Society, or the PACES Society. Centers enrolled children between January of 2000 and December of 2017 with phenotypic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, defined as the presence of unexplained LVH above two standard deviations from normal in the absence of secondary causes for LVH. Exclusion criteria included hypertrophic cardiomyopathy due to an inborn error of metabolism or storage disease, a malformation syndrome like Noonan syndrome, 
or a neuromuscular disorder like Friedrich's ataxia or myotonic dystrophy, thus resulting in a study of idiopathic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients. If patients were genotype positive but phenotype negative, they were excluded from this study. ECHO reports were reviewed, including M-mode measurements of the interventricular septal thickness and LV posterior wall thickness. These dimensions were converted to Z-scores. For this work, obesity was a BMI over the 99th percentile for age and sex. And on to the results. The total group of patients numbered 504, and 68% were male. The mean age was 12 and a half years. Overall, the average BMI was 23, and obesity was seen in 30% of the children in this work. Interestingly, though 63% of the children without obesity in this work were male, amongst the 140 obese children, fully 78%, or 109 of 140, were male. When comparing the interventricular septal dimension between obese and non-obese patients, there was no difference detected. However, the posterior wall thickness in obese patients was 13.3 millimeters and significantly higher than that seen in non-obese patients at 10.4. When looking at the relationship between BMI as a continuous variable in comparison to echo wall thickness, BMI as a continuous variable was not significantly associated with septal wall thickness, but was associated with posterior wall thickness, even adjusting for age and gender. In their discussion, the authors state that the main finding of this work was the association of an increase in posterior wall thickness beyond what would be expected by HCM alone. The authors speak of the fact that obesity in general can increase LV mass and diastolic dysfunction, and that this has been shown previously in otherwise healthy kids. They speak also of the increasing prevalence of obesity in children from the 1980s to today, and they comment on the fact that obesity will reliably increase blood pressure in most patients, and they don't know in this work if the effect on blood pressure would be the main cause for thickness increases seen in this work, as they did not assess or record blood pressure in any of these patients. The authors then reference another work by them showing that elevated LV posterior wall thickness in HCM patients is associated with enhanced risk for sudden cardiac death, and so they question whether the increased posterior wall thickness associated with obesity further enhances the risk in the obese HCM patient. There's some discussion about why it might be that the septum was not as affected as the posterior wall of the heart in this cohort, and they offer one or two possible theories. In their description of the limitations, the authors note the retrospective nature of this work, the fact that the data come from many different centers with the inherent limitations of this type of work, the absence of a core lab that actually was measuring the ECHO studies. Remember that the findings here are based entirely on review of the reports, not an actual independent re-review of the studies. Finally, they again mention the absence of blood pressure measurements and their inability to gauge the impact of hypertension on these findings. And so they conclude that the presence of obesity does appear to influence LV thickness in children with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It's associated with increased posterior wall thickness. However, septal thickness appears to be independent of obesity. Whether obesity and its impact on LVH influence clinical outcomes in children with HCM needs to be confirmed by further studies. Well, this is an interesting work in that it seems to suggest that obesity may have a similar impact on the hearts of HCM patients as those without the disease. Of course, as the authors suggest, 
I do think that one of the most serious limitations of this work is our inability to really know if it's obesity itself that's resulted in these changes or the hypertension that can come hand in hand with obesity. If these patients were properly managed for their hypertension, would the ventricular dimension change as was seen in this work? Certainly, another question is the big pink elephant in the room, which is whether these changes in thickness are associated with enhanced risk for sudden cardiac death. Certainly, in HCM patients, we know from many prior works that increases in thickness are associated with enhanced sudden cardiac death risk. However, do changes in thickness associated with obesity translate into increased risk? This work does not ask or even answer this question, but certainly we can at least ask Dr. Balaji for his opinion in this regard. At this point, I think it would make sense to move straight on to our interview with Dr. Sishadri Balaji. Joining us now to discuss this work is Professor Sisadri Balaji of the Oregon Health and Science University School of Medicine in Medford, Oregon. Dr. Balaji is a graduate of Stanley Medical College in Chennai, India, and completed his fellowship in pediatric cardiology as well as pediatric electrophysiology at the Medical University of South Carolina. He is known as one of the most famous and prominent electrophysiologists in the world, and it's a great pleasure and honor to have him join us this week to discuss his paper. Welcome, Balaji, to the podcast. All right, I'm here with uh, Sisadri Balaji. Uh, Dr. Balaji, thank you so much for joining us this week on the podcast. Oh, Rob, this is a great pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's our pleasure. Really enjoyed this uh, work, a small work, but very important nonetheless. You know, we know from other works that obesity increases LV mass and dimensions. Was the degree of change in LV mass different in these HCM patients in comparison to other non-HCM patients? In other words, was the impact of being obese greater in increasing the degree of hypertrophy on a percentage basis versus what you might have expected in someone who didn't have HCM? You know, the the study that we did wasn't really uh, set up to examine that, so I can't really give you a straight answer to that question. Uh, But here's what I, my gut feeling is that it's not, Uh, exaggerated in HCM patients. I think it is similar to what you would expect in anybody with a that severe degree of obesity. So this is something you know uh, I think that definitely is an interesting question whether and I think what you're alluding to is whether HCM patients have a higher propensity to hypertrophy if they become obese and if they have other risk factors. Yes. And it's I think it's definitely something that needs to be explored, but I don't think our study can answer that question. I see. I wonder, Balaji, uh, were you surprised by the absence of a significant effect on the septum versus the posterior wall in these patients? And I wonder if you had any thoughts on why these differences were observed. Yeah, that's, an, that's a very, very good question. That's a, actually a very astute question. Yes, I, uh, we were surprised by that. We thought it would be proportional and it should be, you know, concentric. It should affect all segments of the myocardium is what we thought. But here is our thinking on this. The thinking is that the septum probably is more influenced by the HCM gene and by the asymmetric hypertrophy aspect, whereas the posterior wall behaves like the rest of the myocardium. So just like it would in you or me, Mm-hmm. The posterior wall is pro- prone to thickness because of additional risk factors like obesity, etc. So, uh, yes, it was a surprising finding, but in you know when I when we think about it more, it makes sense that uh, the 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 septal hypertrophy varies a lot from person to person depending on the HCM gene and how it is expressed phenotypically, and so the septum probably goes more with 
the HCM part, whereas the posterior wall is being influenced just as much by the obesity part. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, Balaji, I'm going to ask you to put on your electrophysiologist hat now. I know you really didn't study this, but we all know that hypertrophy of LV muscle in HCM is associated with an enhanced risk for sudden cardiac death. I wonder if you believe that the finding of an increased posterior wall thickness, which you showed in this study, may actually mean that these patients are at an enhanced risk for sudden death in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in the obese patient. Well, you know, not to be alarmist, because I don't want to uh, worry people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That remains to be studied. We haven't made that connection yet, but there is a hint that that might be the case. Uh, you now have two studies. Not, uh, I'm talking about the prior study that we, that we published on risk factors, yes. and that showed that posterior wall thickness, at least in children, in teenagers, seems to be more associated with risk of sudden death than even septal thickness. Hmm. And this and this actually confirms a previous study that was published by the Australians, by the Australian cardiomyopathy group in children. So you now have at least two studies that suggest that posterior wall thickness can be a very important determinant of risk for sudden death. And add the obesity part to that and the fact that obesity might increase your posterior wall thickness even further uh, I definitely am concerned about this aspect of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and increasing risk with increasing posterior wall thickness, and I think that needs to be really looked at more carefully. Yeah, certainly it seems like something that needs to be studied before we make a determination regarding whether it's actually an elevated risk. Uh, and for those in the audience, uh, Dr. Balaji is referencing a much larger work from the same group of investigators, which I plan on reviewing on the podcast in a couple of weeks. So stay tuned for that one. You know, as we're coming to the end of this uh, brief interview, I wondered if you might share with the audience how you counsel patients with HCM in regards to exercise to maintain good health. Has the data in this work swayed you in your thoughts regarding exercise limitations and what effect this might have on obesity in this cohort? Yeah, uh, another very interesting question. And I think there is some work coming out, especially from the the live or the live HCM study that uh, Rachel Lampert and their group in Yale are doing. And I think that will really cast a lot of light on this. But here is my thinking on this. I think that moderate exercise is good for everybody, including HCM patients, and avoidance of obesity, appropriate balanced diet, and moderate, mild to moderate exercise to stay fit and stay proportionate to your height. It can be very important to maintain long-term cardiac health, even in HCM patients, or I should say, particularly in HCM patients because of this enhanced risk that we've just been talking about. So severe exercise and competitive exercise, yes, that is a concern. And uh, uh, I think I counsel my patients to avoid that. I also counsel my patients to avoid weightlifting. And especially if it's lifting of weights that makes them hold their breath mm. so that I, I'm worried that that might increase their afterload on their left ventricle. Yes. But I'm also counseling them to stay healthy, to do moderate exercise. And I think any hypertension in these patients needs to be treated, you know, fairly aggressively uh, to prevent that uh, afterload increase and uh, potential for further hypertrophy in the patients. So any advice that we would give to a normal person in terms of 
diet, exercise, etc., applies, I think, even more so, probably tenfold more so, in somebody with HCM. Yeah, well, that's a very good and very reasonable advice. Well, I can't thank you enough, Balaji, for being on the show. Uh, you're our first guest from the state of Oregon, so thank you for that. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> and uh, I really appreciate it, and congratulations to you and all the PACES investigators. I know you guys worked yes. very long and hard yes. on this work. Yes, it was a large collaboration, and I, I and I must mention all my collaborators and people who helped us to do this study. Thank that's, you, Rob. That's my pleasure. Have a wonderful evening. Once again, I think it's clear that when the guest is great, there's not all that much to say. Dr. Balaji offered us some of his thoughts on why the posterior wall of the LV may be more affected by obesity than the septum, and what this may mean in regards to a possible elevation in the risk for sudden cardiac death. I thought his advice regarding the importance of moderate exercise in the HCM patient to be very important, and certainly this work this week has shown us that there are definitely important effects of obesity, and his admonition that typical recommendations from cardiologists to be healthy in regards to diet and exercise is perhaps, to use his words, tenfold more important in this population of patients. I'm most appreciative of Dr. Balaji's appearance tonight on the show and hope you enjoyed this master electrophysiologist's thoughts on an important aspect of cardiomyopathy. At this point, I'd like to move on to our interview with Ms. Lisa Yu of the Children's Cardiomyopathy Foundation. Ms. Yu is the president of the Children's Cardiomyopathy Foundation, which she founded 17 years ago with her husband, Eddie Yu. Ms. Yu is a graduate of Cornell University and the famous University of Chicago Graduate School of Business. She has won many awards for her work with the Children's Cardiomyopathy Foundation, which has helped to support a very large number of research projects, as well as enhance understanding for everyone, from medical practitioners to families, about cardiomyopathy. It is an honor and pleasure to have Lisa join us this week on the podcast. Welcome, Ms. Yu, to the podcast. We're here now with Lisa Yu of the Children's Cardiomyopathy Foundation. Lisa, thank you very much for joining us this week. Well, thanks for having me on today. I really appreciate it. Lisa, I was wondering if you might be able to share with the audience what you view as the main goals of the Children's Cardiomyopathy Foundation at this time. What are they? Sure. Um, the Children's Cardiomyopathy Foundation is a national nonprofit, and we're focused on all forms of cardiomyopathy in children. Our mission is really to accelerate the search for causes and cures for pediatric cardiomyopathy, and we do this through uh, increased research, education, awareness, and advocacy, and we also try to support families whose children are affected by the disease. And so we really try to work with the scientific, the medical, healthcare, and the patient community in serving their various needs. I see. I wonder if you might share with the audience how your organization came into existence and what were the challenges that you had in establishing such a now successful nonprofit organization of this type? Well, thank you. Um, like many patient advocacy groups, there's a personal story behind um, the Children's Cardiomyopathy Foundation, um, the formation. Um, basically, the foundation, it was established in 2002 after my husband and I, we lost our second child to cardiomyopathy. And our first son, Brian, he died undiagnosed of a sudden cardiac arrest. And then our second son, Kevin, died waiting for a heart transplant. And so our situation basically highlights the two worst statistics about cardiomyopathy. Um, it's the leading cause of sudden cardiac arrest and also the number one cause for heart transplants in children. 
Um, at the time, there was really very low awareness of the disease, and there were few research studies on the condition in children. Uh, even though it was so variable and there were so many, you know, multiple causes of the disease that still were not known, um, we also found that there was no patient support or resources um, available to us at the time. Wow. And so considering what we went through, we felt very isolated and we, there were so many unanswered questions. And for a parent who lost two children to this very rare heart condition, this was just unacceptable. And so it was at that point we decided to do something about it. Well, I think the biggest challenge for us as a small organization is basically raising funds for research. Um, you know, research takes a lot of dollars, um, but we also found that we were able to still make a difference in smaller ways, and we found that we could build a strong patient community through just online resources and support and offering support services. And we also discovered that through grassroots advocacy, we could be a voice for this disease. I see. Well, you certainly have been through your uh, extraordinary achievements. I, I wonder if you might, for the audience, uh, mention some of the more important achievements that you would say your organization has uh, has arrived at in the last couple of years? Well, some of our work is highlighted in um, a Progress in Pediatric Cardiology article that was published in January of 2016. And in that article, we really talked about the partnerships that we developed over the years and how we were able to uh, reach certain milestones through those partnerships. And it was really through our research grant program that we developed in partnerships with the Pediatric Cardiomyopathy Registry, uh, also the American Heart Association and the American Academy of Pediatrics, that we were able to push for more relevant research on the disease and better diagnostic and treatment guidelines for children with cardiomyopathy. We also started hosting international scientific conferences every few years to bring the top specialists together to talk about research direction on the disease. And I'm you know, proud to say that we have more than um, 194 publications and 138 presentations that have resulted from our funded initiatives. And um, there have been some important papers that have come out, including an American Heart Association scientific statement this year. And this is really, yeah, this has really uh, come about under the, you know, great leadership of our medical advisors who have been very dedicated and involved with the foundation from the very beginning in 2002. Um, so also aside from the research, um, we've also developed a lot of educational materials on the disease. And I think what I mentioned before was that um, when we first learned of our child, there was really no available resources for for families, for patients. And um, so we made it a priority that when CCF was established that we would develop uh, lay materials and put together a support group for uh, parents of diagnosed children. And so now we have a range of patient education materials about the different forms of cardiomyopathy that we distribute free of charge to about 70 hospitals in the U.S. and Canada. And so these printed materials and videos are all accessible from our website, and we also work very hard to make uh, additional online materials available through the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and also the American Heart Association, and also the National Organization of Rare Disease. 
Um, we also worked with the American Academy of Pediatrics to make sure that they had information on pediatric cardiomyopathy on their consumer website. Um, so we wanted to make sure that parents could have access to this information so they could be empowered and um, be a better partner with their child's health care provider. Um, wow. Well, that's, uh, that's quite extraordinary. Boy, talk about important achievements. Uh, any one of them would have been quite a remarkable achievement. I, uh, I'm really uh, so profoundly impressed. I have been, of course, I... Those in the audience, I know uh, Ms. Yu and her husband for many years. I'm, I've always been very, very impressed by the achievements, but I really, quite frankly, never knew quite how extraordinary they have been and really uh, quite something. I wonder, Lisa, um, if you might speak to the importance of Children's Cardiomyopathy Awareness Month. Uh, as you probably know, this podcast is largely listened to pediatric cardiologists and cardiovascular specialists, also nurses throughout the world, really. I wonder if you might uh, share with you what, what you would like people to think about during this September's Children's Cardiomyopathy Awareness Month. Sure. Um, September is Children's Cardiomyopathy Awareness Month, and this public awareness initiative was launched in 2014 uh, in an effort to call attention to the disease. And so this year we have like more than, uh, sorry, we have 15 national partners um, helping to promote this uh, um uh, information about this disease, and this includes like Society of the Pediatric Cardiovascular Nurses and the American Heart Association, also the National Alliance for Youth Sports. And as you know, cardiomyopathy can be genetic in nature, and I mentioned before that it is a leading cause of sudden cardiac arrest when it's undiagnosed. So during this month, we're encouraging families to, uh, you know, lo look at their cardiac health history and learn the signs and symptoms of cardiomyopathy. And our goal is to help identify more high-risk individuals and make sure that they're screened and diagnosed earlier and they get the proper care that they need. Um, you know, we work with a lot of families where, you know, oftentimes they, um, the pediatrician is their first point of contact. But cardiomyopathy, the symptoms, if you're not thinking about cardiomyopathy, they might think that it's, you know, maybe just a cold or just a flu or even possibly asthma. So, again, this is an opportunity for us to kind of uh, raise awareness of cardiomyopathy. And so we're asking, um, you know, people across the U.S. to participate in different awareness activities during uh, September. And this can be as simple as posting facts about the disease on social media or sharing a story. Uh, about someone with cardiomyopathy that in inspires them. Mm. Um, you know, it'd be great if hospitals could mention it in their newsletter and social media and just, uh, you know, it's an opportunity for them to even highlight their cardiomyopathy and heart failure practice. And the goal is really to start a conversation and, you know, get people to talk about it. Well, that's uh, that's really wonderful. I'm already thinking about how I'm going to get Mount Sinai involved in this as I'm listening to you. You're so inspiring. Uh, Lisa, I really appreciate your giving us time. I know you're a very busy person, also parents of four children right now, so I'm sure you've got a lot to do. Uh, for those in the audience, it's uh, well past 8 o'clock uh, during the week. As we're coming to the close of this interview, I'm wondering if you might uh, be able to uh, tell people in the audience who might be interested in making a donation to your organization, how would one go about doing that? Yes, you can visit our website at childrenscardiomyopathy.org, and there's a donate button on the upper right corner. 
Um, you know, we welcome, you know, other forms of gifts such as securities, pro bono services, or even in-kind donations for our events. And also, just one more note, because it's Cardiomyopathy uh, Awareness Month, um, our annual Walk for a Cure um, will be next, uh, well, it's Sunday, uh, September 29th in West Orange, New Jersey, and you can visit our website for more information. It's a great way to come together to honor all those living with cardiomyopathy. Wow, well, that's a very exciting. Lisa, I can't thank you enough for coming on this week and highlighting your wonderful uh, foundation's work and also making sure that all of us are understanding of the importance of Children's Cardiomyopathy Awareness Month. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. What an inspiring story to hear the history of the Children's Cardiomyopathy Foundation and how the Yu family took their family tragedy with cardiomyopathy and built a grassroots organization that has resulted in so many grants for research into this topic, improving our then limited understanding of this important problem. They show once again how the efforts of just a few passionate people can result in a meaningful change in the world, and I know you are likely equally inspired by their accomplishments in the arena of cardiomyopathy. For those of you interested in potentially supporting this worthy organization, I would again refer you to their website, childrenscardiomyopathy.org, all one word, and click on the donate button in the upper right part of the page. You'll be glad you did. To conclude our 85th episode of the podcast, we'll hear the lovely Paolo Tosti song, L'Alba Separa Dalla Luce L'Ombra, or translated, The Dawn Divides the Darkness from Light. We've previously heard this song sung by the wonderful young tenor Michael Fabiano, but today we have the treat of hearing the then young Jose Carreras, one of the three tenors, sing this lovely song in 1975 in his first American song recital, which was illegally recorded from the audience, but which we'll be hearing today. Mr. Carreras is retiring from singing this year, but in this excerpt we can well understand the source of his fame and many accolades. Thank you very much for joining me this week for our episode in honor of Children's Cardiomyopathy the Awareness Month. I hope to see you all back next week for episode 86. Oh, uh-huh.